the study of theology is the study of the word or the idea or the concept or the logic of God himself. Took me four years to read the Bible. I reckon I understand a great deal of it. Wasn't what I expected in some places. So I'm sad that we're not on the same page eschatologically. I wish Sam Storms and I were on the same page. So you believe in these kind of things? Let's just say I want to believe. Well, I know where he was converted. He was converted on the toilet. That, I, I like that one. We're you gonna would. To, you could say he was saying I was in the dumps, whatever. Just, well, which stall what? was he in? First John, second John, no, 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 third no, no, John. Wait, wait, wait. Let's let be careful here. He had bowel problems. He struggled with constipation. The argument among certain psychologists, he finally experienced relief with constipation. And in that moment of relief and deliverance, he suddenly... I wasn't getting that graphic. <laughs> he suddenly, you know, had this breakthrough discovery. And all of his fetid guilt, he released. Well, welcome to Theology Unplugged, and it is good to be here with some good friends, Sam Storms. Good to be here with you, brother. I agree. It's good to be here with you, too. Clint, it's good to be with you. Fantastic. <laughs> and uh, Michael is not here, but we are pressing on in his absence talking about the Reformation, and most specifically talking about John Calvin. And here's what I want, I think we need to talk about immediately, not very long, but immediately, wow. is we're going to talk about John Calvin if you are not a Calvinist, should you just stop listening right now? No, of course not. I mean, we. I mean, if this series uh, continues and we start talking about the post-Reformation period, we probably devote a, a, a couple of podcasts to James Arminius. Okay. And uh, because he was, in a sense, also a reformer, and uh, we would want our Calvinist friends to listen in. If they're predetermined yeah. to keep listening, they're going to keep listening. <laughs> that doesn't help. So <laughs> that I'm doesn't sorry. help at all. <laughs> and, and I agree to you. I think that um, as I uh, uh, read through Calvin's Institutes, it took me a couple of years, but got through it, I was really struck with how this is a, uh, a treasure for all Christians. Uh, regardless how you view uh, what is known today as Calvinism. Uh, but uh, let's zoom back out, and hopefully everybody's still listening. And, yeah. and, then, uh, and then just say, who is this guy? Uh, where does this guy exist in history? And um, why, why are we talking about him? Well, how about a little background bio on Calvin? Um, I'm going to draw from my memory here. He's born in 1509, so let's see, that's... Uh, 18, that's what, 20, no, 17 and 9, 26 years younger than Luther. Yep. Yeah, so he would have been eight when Luther was right. nailing his 95 right. theses. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Good math. In fact, Calvin yeah, wasn't even converted until there's dispute, either the late right. 1520s or the early, some date as early as 1528, some as late as 1534. He's French. Most people didn't know that, probably, mm -hmm. and Calvin is simply the anglicized form of his French name. Mm. Um, he was, unlike Luther, he was uh, raised in a rather affluent home, uh, highly educated people. Uh, he went to um, university very young. He got a doctorate in law at the age of 22 and uh, was most likely headed toward a practice in law. Uh, we don't really, I don't know, maybe you, you all know when he first came into contact with the writings of Luther. So let's see, it would have been in, um, what, 1531 that he got his doctorate in law. 
I know that by about mm-hmm. 1532, he had uh, he had started criticizing the Roman Catholic Church because uh, mm-hmm. what really, and again, he was like Luther initially. He did not want to break from Rome. He wanted to see it reformed from within. Mm-hmm. And um, he and a fellow named Nicholas Kopp uh, co-wrote a lecture that they delivered in Paris that was very critical of Rome. And they got literally run out of town. The story is that Calvin had to be let down out of a window by a rope. Bed sheets. Bed sheets, yeah. And that he um, he escaped by disguising himself as a vine dresser with <laughs> yep. a hoe over his shoulder. In fact, yep. you see pictures of Calvin uh, with, you know, like he's mm-hmm. some sort of a, a gardener or whatever. And he basically had to flee. And uh, it was... Probably just prior to that event that he came to faith in Christ, his his conversion, he himself would say, was was not like Luther's. Luther's, as we know, was probably this massively dramatic and emotional um, uh, event. Calvin described it as the fall of a city after a long siege. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it was kind of more progressive transformation in him than it was in Luther. Because when he was 17, I know, is when he moved to start studying law away from theological studies. And at that time, he is exposed to Wycliffe Huss and some of the thoughts of Luther uh, when he's in uh, N-O-Y-O-N. Noyon. Noyon. You've got to say it with a nasal. Monsieur Jean Cavin of Noyon. I feel like I need to be drinking wine or something to get into that. Oui, oui. Uh, but then, uh, 1533, age of 24, uh, seems to be in his commentary on the book of Psalms, he says, God, by a sudden conversion, well, before, when he's 17, he says, I was stubbornly still tied to the superstitions of the papacy. papacy. Yeah. So you see how he's yeah. <laughs> viewing that at that time, and then saying, God, by a sudden conversion, subdued and brought to my mind to a teachable frame, which is more hardened in such matters than might have been expected from one at my early period of life. Having thus received some taste and knowledge of true godliness, I was immediately inflamed with so intense a desire to make progress therein that although I did not altogether leave off other studies, yet I pursued them with less ardor. Even though he so. still did them, because yes. he's just such a such a gifted mind. The portrait that I get of him is of just an exceptional and dedicated thinker. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Because he, in his, I don't know, spare time, would we call it? cranks out this big um, commentary on Seneca. Mm. He's a, you know, like the humanists. He's mm. doing all this, and he he completes the law degree even though he's not terribly interested in it because his, um, his father had wanted it. So here's what the biographer McNeil says, which I think is great, in talking about Calvin's willingness to do it, even though he didn't like it. Mm. But his father passed away, and he says, his father's death left Calvin free to make his own choice of a career. He was not inclined to enter the profession of the law, yet, not to leave a task unfinished, he proceeded to the doctorate in law. <laughs> like, uh, I'll go ahead and just knock out a doctorate in law. <laughs> you know, Dad would have wanted it. Yeah. Well, and he was also an expert in ancient languages. There's no telling how many mm-hmm. he could read. Mm. So let's pick it up. Uh, let's, let's pick up the journey because this is where it gets fascinating. I'm trying to remember, did he go first to Basel or to Strasbourg? Can't remember. And then I know he he um, goes back to Paris to, to wrap up some details and sell some property and the like. Mm-hmm. And then he's going to go to Strasbourg. That's what it was. And he just wanted to be a, basically a recluse, a scholar. Yeah. He just wanted to kind of hunker down and 
uh, right theology books and, and he does connect with Bootser though there doesn't he? he well he go, he goes to to Basel first yes. at the age of twenty six and then yeah. he and then he wants to go back to Strasbourg but there's a war mm-hmm. which yeah. is interesting how God providentially utilized a conflict the Swiss wars that was going on and he had to take a detour and ended up in Basel mm-hmm. and while he is at a um, or um, an inn, apparently. Um, you know, the Motel 6 of Basel sure. stayed there many times. They keep the lights on for you. Um, uh, Farrell hears about... You mean Will Farrell? Will Farrell. Yeah. <laughs> F-A-R-E-L. Many pronounce it Farrell, but we'll right. say Farrell. We, Maybe we should, yeah. just so that people don't get a really bizarre <laughs> yeah. idea. Hears about Calvin's Calvin presence, races over there, and begins to argue with him, saying, you have to come with me to Geneva. Calvin says, no, I don't think so. And Farrell <laughs> begins to get extremely animated mm-hmm. and finally, forgive my French, uh, says, um, let God damn your studies. Let God damn your solitude. And Calvin is so shaken by Farrell's mm-hmm. presentation and pronouncing the wrath of God on him. He says, all right, I obey. Yeah. Um, Scoots off to uh, Geneva with Farrell, and his first uh, season in Geneva uh, begins to unfold. And they they implement some changes. They try to bring about some um, some internal reform. And um, I don't can't remember what they are. They're a couple of years, and then the, the, the people rise up in protest because they don't like the call to uh, godly living and some of the uh, rules that Calvin put in place, such as restricting the Lord's table to believers and such. And they quite literally kick Calvin and Farrell out of Geneva. Mm-hmm. And that's when Calvin connects with Bootser. Mm-hmm. Um, and Bootser exerts a huge influence on his life. And Bootser, the, was Bootser in Strasbourg? I believe he was. Yeah. yeah. So Bootser wants to persuade Calvin to remain in Strasbourg. And Calvin refuses so he gets in touch with Farrell. He said, how did you did it? How'd you do it? How'd you get him to come to Geneva? He says, just pronounce the wrath of God on him. Yeah. So Bootser does the same thing, and Calvin craters again, says, all right. Um, and he then eventually goes back to Geneva with Farrell. They, they actually, no, he goes mm-hmm. to Strasbourg for a while. Mm-hmm. And then um, some of the supporters in Geneva get in touch with him and Farrell and say, you got to come back. Mm-hmm. And Calvin basically says, look, I'll agree to come back, but only on the condition that you allow us to implement the reforms that are that we believe God would have us uh, bring to bear in Geneva. So he goes back to Geneva for his second tour of duty, as it were. Mm. And during this time, he's writing and writing a lot. And would it be safe to say that, I, I know some people have said that, that Luther was the trumpet mm-hmm. and that Calvin was the symphony. Where so so Luther is this strong German right. monk who is is very much moving, but the Reformation seemed like had had started to kind of spin out of control. You know that you have the peasant up up uh, revolt. Uh, over a hundred thousand people have died. Uh, that there's all of this. Uh, and Luther, pe- Luther's people, being blamed for it. Yeah, people yeah. are being burned at the stake, burned alive, and and Calvin even hears that. Um, one of his friends has just been burned alive for, I believe his name was Etienne de la Forge. Uh, was, Man, uh, you've got the French down. <laughs> I'm trying. Uh, and that he was burned alive. And the reason people are burning people alive are they, they're thinking that they're heretics. And so it's like, okay, here's this heretic 
who has gone against the church, we need to kill him. And they're they're burning these people alive. And Calvin hears about it, but Calvin isn't, you know, he's he's he doesn't sound like he's the most forceful personality, no. right? Like Farrell and others he's are not. like able to He's not but, like Luther. But he he has a pen though, right? Like he mm-hmm. he's forceful in the way of his writings and 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 he's providing something in the Reformation that is lacking, which mm-hmm. is this this really great theological work that is saying like no the reformers are not a new thing what the reformers are doing are they are mm-hmm. reconnecting to to the 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 ancient of days to the old you know it, they're not doing anything new they're reconnecting to orthodox historic christianity and and that is what becomes his institutes of the christian religion is his and what i was amazed by is it is a letter to the king of france right you right, know? so right, he, yeah. he's basically saying like i'm gonna write a letter to the king of the france showing them that these reformers are actually in the line of of true christianity and don't kill them mm-hmm. and you know that's his contribution in many ways and so he wrote the first edition of the institutes i think in 1536 but it was only um, like four to six chapters long yeah and then the final edition was what 1550 it. where yeah. it's 80 chapters long yes yeah by the right. way just something to keep in mind because this is going to come up in just a moment i think that people in our day forget the concept of religious tolerance mm. was unheard of in mm. this time and in place. Mm. The idea that you live and let live, and we have freedom of religion, and the First Amendment, mm. uh, you know, is it operational, was simply unknown. Um, if you did not conform to the established religion in any particular province, mm. you were subject to exile or execution, mm. and that was common. Catholics were killing Protestants. Protestants were killing Anabaptists. Mm. Um, Protestants were killing Catholics. I mean, it was, mm-hmm. they were killing Unitarians, as we'll come to in just a moment. This was just, now again, it's not excusable. I'm not saying that because they didn't understand religious tolerance, we can overlook their sin in this regard, but it was a different time. It was a different world, different yeah. worldview. And uh, we need to keep that in mind. Yeah, definitely. I think in some ways, like I kind of, um, <laughs> I'm I'm thankful I'm not living in the 1500s. Yeah, you better be. <laughs> on many fronts, you know. Uh, there's a certain clarity and passion of the things of God, though, that I think you know. So many times today, we battle for just. Uh, I think because there's such kind of pluralism that there's such apathy and there isn't this deep passion for like you know we want the truth of God to be uh, to be what we talk about. Well, to life be what in general is just so much easier for us. The yeah. political situation so much easier. I mean, think about Swingley has to go off to fight in a war he knows he's going to die in. He knows and he's gonna, he dies. He knows they're going to lose. Yeah. But that's just part of life when you're in a, a context where. You're, you know, there's war, there's persecution. Calvin's father had been excommunicated from yeah. the church. Yeah. Um, you know, he escaped because he thought, I might die if I don't. Yeah. I mean, how, have you ever felt that way? Like you might be killed if you didn't leave town? I, I dare say most people haven't. No. So that, in some ways, that is a clarifying thing to live with day in and day out. You know, it yeah. kind of puts the razor's edge on... What really matters to you? All right, let's let's pick up Calvin on his uh, second installment as leader of the church in mm-hmm. Geneva. Mm-hmm. Somebody give me kind of a synopsis of the sorts of things that he did there and why he was so harshly resisted. Well, I, I, I just want to make sure we don't uh, miss the fact that the fact that he went to Geneva, wouldn't you consider 
We, we've covered two things I think are maybe um, more historic than we've given them credit. We've kind of flown by them. One is just the fact that he wound up there. I mean, you said it was uh, Pharrell's, um, you know, fiery, almost semi-quasi-manipulative, <laughs> you know, threatening... You mean calling down uh, the wrath on servant. somebody if they don't respond to your request? Yeah. Manipulative? But it Wait. would change the course of things. And then his decision to write the Institutes because... Right. Um, has there, I mean, I don't know, did the Reformation produce, and we're talking about some keen and important writers, I mean, you've got Erasmus stuff so influential, you've got the 95 Theses themselves, you've got all kinds of things, but is there a text more profound, more uh, his, history-altering, really, mm -hmm. that comes out of this period no. than the Institutes? In fact, yeah. I would just say to all of our listeners, um, I've read through the Institutes probably a half dozen times, I remember the first time was when I was in seminary. And if you're thinking, oh, this is just a some pointy-headed ivory tower theologian writing those esoteric doctrine, you have no idea. It is so devotional, yeah. so passionate, so straightforward in its articulation of truth. Uh, you will be immensely blessed. So I would strongly urge you, if you haven't, uh, pick up McNeil's edition. It's the... Uh, the, the Christian classic series yeah. is, I think, the best translation, and you will not regret it. I'm and probably going to say something that's going to make you really angry, Sam. You didn't like the Institutes? No. You read I, the abridged version. Oh. No. I love the Institutes so much that I think they are way more accessible, which I think you'd agree with me, but also way more soul-stirring than reading Jonathan Edwards' Or John Owen, but I'd say Edwards. I would say if you, That's if, -American. you me, if you had me choose, like you can read Institutes hmm. five times or read Edwards five Depends times. Depends on what in Edwards you're reading. I, but, but I, 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 say, I agree. As a general statement. Well, let's say, let's put it this way. It's I'd agree with you because uh, the Institutes are a systematic and very coherent approach to all of Christian theology. Hmm. Um, and his prose is much better than Edwards. Edwards wrote in the kind of the Puritan prose, extended sentences, never met a comma he didn't fall in love with. And uh, John Owen, is even, his prose is even worse than oh, Edwards. Oh, it's hard. So yeah, yeah it is. It's funny you guys are saying this since, uh, you know, you give all the love to Calvin's writings and their translation in English. The other guys are actually writing in your mother tongue. Yeah, that's, so, right. yeah. that's right. Well, and what? Calvin was writing, though, in French and in Latin. Right. Like, so right. I think there's probably a sense of the way his style was maybe, uh, I, I don't know. I'm well, I like how he writes but, anyway. I, I, yeah. I remember reading the, his response to Cardinal Satellite, you know, remember that mm -hmm. when he writes? And he's tapped to write this. And Satellite apparently is a formidable, you know, think like, remember Johann Eck? I mean, yeah. these are intimidating figures. Yeah. And I just loved it. I thought... You know, for a guy who seems to be uh, demure and doesn't mm -hmm. want to, it's not like Zwingli and Luther. He's mm -hmm. not. He doesn't have that personality. But man, you're right. When he when he takes the old quill in hand, oh man, he just it's scorched earth, and, and it's it's yeah. so well done that yeah. it's like man, I I could see why I, he writes to me like a guy who really thinks I will convert you. Yeah. <laughs> when you yeah. Wasn't, so good. Weren't the institutes an apologetic of sorts? He's well, it was to the king of France, yeah. so he was. It was a defense of the faith. Yeah. 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 And, Calvin, and Calvin wasn't, you know, like Luther, when he wrote 
uh, bondage of the will in response to Erasmus. Uh, he said, you know, my dear Erasmus, he said, your words are like dung carried around in a in a golden wheelbarrow. <laughs> oh, said, that's sweet. He said, "You, it, it sounds so eloquent, and it's 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 transmitted with such grace, but it's refuse, it's dung." Uh, Calvin would occasionally break out in that kind of metaphor, but not often. All right, let's yeah. let's move on. Calvin's back in Geneva. Geneva, yeah. Um, he begins to institute certain reforms, and he is opposed by several groups, one of whom were called the Libertines, who basically everything Calvin advocated for, they were against. And they, there's one instance where they said, we believe in the communion of saints. We believe that all saints ought to be able to commune sexually with all other saints. Hey they advocated adultery and uh, all sorts of promiscuity. Um, then there were those, oh, in fact, there's one incident where the Libertines uh, stormed the church with, ar with arms. They were with weapons, and they were going to force Calvin to serve them the Lord's table. And Calvin th literally threw himself over the table with his arms outstretched and basically said, these hands you can lop off, this body you can kill, but I will die before I give what is sacred to those who are profane. Mm. And they backed out. They mm. stood down. That was Calvin's passion. Uh, it's, I think it's so hard for us to, to recognize because I think in America so much of our church and like the church exists in the city but the church and the city are very different things you yeah. know and like you know here calvin is is not this ivory tower guy he's a guy that like is uh he's a pastor yeah in the city council like you know we think of city councils of just mm -hmm. being people there like hey should we let costco come into this community <laughs> yeah. or not come in this community you know but these city councils like geneva city council is like talking about discipleship and talking about right. you know like what does it mean to be a christian there, what it look there like? was no separation of church and state at this yeah. time and there's there's hanging or burning yeah, and there's a lot of friction, and and they they fire him. Like the the city council had right. the authority to fire yeah. Calvin. And then when Calvin comes back, I thought this was a, a great quote: uh, is that when uh, three years after he had been fired, uh, they the city council votes to have him come back the second mm -hmm. time that we're talking about. And his first reaction is, "Rather would I submit to death a hundred times <laughs> than to that cross on which I had to perish daily a thousand times over." You know, so I think what you're saying too of laying himself on, you know, here is a guy who is is not just like, oh, isn't the pastor it's so nice and calm and like quiet yeah. and I just, you know, I only have to work it's a half a burden day. of yeah. leadership. Yeah, for like him. he's feeling this passion of like, man, okay, I'm going back into a battle. When he wants uh, no that, part of it either, right? He, he'd yeah. rather just be in a uh, library, wouldn't he? Just, he wanted to write books. Initially, yeah. but I think what happens is like he starts meeting the people that he's leading and i think that becomes takes more over. pastoral over yeah where he's like you know how could i which Farrell just said you know how could you just live in a study for the rest of your life and not actually be on mission on the ground in this city all right here's what we're going to do we're going to come into the conclusion here let's wrap this up and we want to pick up in the next podcast uh the most infamous event in calvin's life uh -huh. and ministry and then talk a little bit about his theology but before mm -hmm. we do just one final observation People don't realize this. Calvin was a physical wreck. Yeah. Um, it takes a couple of paragraphs to list all the afflictions and the pains mm. and the diseases that he endured. During his final year of ministry, they had to carry him from his home into the pulpit. Um, he, um, he preached his last sermon. I'm very grateful he did this on my birthday, mm. at least the month and the day, not the year. I'm not that old. <laughs> um, but uh, Calvin... Calvin preached twice every Sunday, 
And every other week, he would preach twice every day of the week. He uh, would ruin his voice. He would get into coughing fits that were um, almost interminable uh, and press through the agony and the physical difficulties beyond which any of us could even possibly imagine or ever hope on our worst enemy. It's just amazing how he persevered through all of this. So we'll pick up Calvin and uh, the execution of Michael Servetus in our next dun, 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 dun. Thanks for listening. If you're enjoying Theology Unplugged, let me tell you about some of the other resources we have available. Visit us online at credohouse.org and browse over 2,000 articles on everything from the Crusades to gay marriage. Sign up for email updates and get the latest news, event announcements, and special deals before anyone else. Connect with us on social media. Just search Credo House on Twitter and Facebook. And you can always email us at theologyunplugged at credohouse.org. We want you to be part of the Credo community. Please partner with us in making theology accessible and pushing back the intellectual attack on Christianity. Thank you.